What, what you've kind of been learning in the last couple of weeks is going to be kind of culminating in today as we look at the psychology of iGen. So the way that they interact with the world and their relationships, right? So we've seen the data. We see how they spend their time. Now we're going to see, well, how, how do they interact with others? What does that mean in regards to that? So um, let me pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. So bow your heads with me. Father God, as we dive into this topic, um, may we ask good questions. Um, may we uh, be honest with ourselves um, and uh, have insight into how this generation is different than others. In your son's name, amen. Okay. Um, so what we've covered so far, um, we talked a lot about this risk for safety paradigm, um, how this is the first generation that is leans more towards the safety side and the risk side than teenagers. Um, we talked about some of the reasons behind that. We'll get into a couple more today. Um, we talked about what they aren't doing with their time um, compared to other generations. Um, we know that uh, teen jobs are down. Volunteerism is up. There is uh, less homework for some of them. Uh, they're spending less time with their friends. Um, and then what they are doing with their time, um, which that always defines kind of who they are. Good morning. Um, so we've talked about those things. Um, if to remind you the hypothesis of this class, which we're going <coughs> to look into a specific portion of it much heavier today, is technology is a tool and tools inherently help us do things better. Tools can have far reaching impact on society. We all know that. And society typically takes several generations to make a tool safe. Therefore, whatever is already happening in the home is magnified by the use of technology. We're going to kind of cover that ending portion today um, in more detail, uh, the idea of what's happening in the home. Um, so we have to ask, what is it magnifying in the home, right? Like that's the kind of title slide. Um, so what's happening in the home that's kind of impacting teenagers? Um, and uh, we've talked about this a little um, and that is independence or the lack thereof. So teenagers are less independent than they were a generation ago. Um, and then social interactions. They're having fewer of them with their peers. Um, so that affects, again, independence, how they handle um, relational interactions. Um, and we see this in this. Um, this is social interactions parties. Um, so parties are hangout times that happen on the weekends. Just because it's a party doesn't mean it involves alcohol, drugs, and all the crazy stuff that you see on MTV, right? But it's just hangout times with friends. It's typically three or more people um, are talked about parties. Um, so most importantly, they do this just to hang out, right? Like it's not like our parties where we have like a murder mystery dinner, right? Like it's not, there's not a set activity to most parties. It's just get together, hang out sit around doing nothing. It's essentially an evening of Seinfeld, right? Um, all rolled in. Um, and this is what I mean when the graphs go crazy in 2011, 2012, right? Like, it's already on the downward trend. And then 2012 hits. And it's like, like, it just drops um, drastically compared to kind of all the other generations. Um, what about just hanging out? Okay, maybe they're just not going to parties. Maybe they're just hanging out with their friends, right? Um, 
Maybe they, they just don't party, right? Well, the, this chart shows differently. They don't just hang out with their friends. The number of teens who get together with their friends every day has been cut in half in just 15 years. So that's like when I was in high school. It's been cut in half. And again, you see the just sink when the iPhone hits, right? Um, and it's all social, economic levels, races. It's across the board. Uh, so what was once very normal is now very not normal. Hey, great entrance. Um, so the college student survey allows a more precise look at inter- interpersonal social interactions because they are supposed to be inter- independent, right? Like that's the people group that is now bridging out. They, are, they should be living, or they, most of them are living outside the home. Um, they're doing college age activities. So college students in 2016 versus the late 1980s spend four fewer hours a week socializing with their friends and three fewer hours a week partying. So this is seven hours a week less on in-personal social interaction. So that is over an hour less a day of hanging out with friends over the course of a week. So that is like the drastic shift, right? Um, this means iGeners were seeing their friends in person an hour less a day than Gen Xers and early millennials did. An hour a day less spent with friends. Unfortunately, is an hour a day doing this to, to a chance to develop social skills, negotiation, relationships, and navigating emotions. So they have less time to do that. I mean, you can do the math. I'm not going to do it for you, mostly because I'm a theater major, right? Um, <laughs> but you multiply eight hours a week times 56 weeks a year. I mean, you literally have 52. I have extra weeks. I don't know what you do. 52 weeks a year. I get an extra month. It's called Rocktober. Um, that's why you're a theater. That's why I'm a theater. Uh, so uh, you do the math. It's, it's almost a full week of less time getting to do all these things, right? Um, and it's been replaced, as we saw in the last two weeks, not by like jobs or st- other stuff or homework or um, volunteer hours and stuff like that. It's been replaced by screen time. That's the that is what's been replaced it. So how are they inter- how are they interacting with their friends? Right? Um, how are they interacting with their peers? Um, teens are Instagramming, Snapchatting, and texting with their friends more and seeing them in person less. For iGeners, online friendship has replaced offline friendship. Um, and now we get to ask the hard question. Like, I love the why, right? As a theater person, I always loved looking at the, um, reading the script the first time through and then going back and asking those questions about why is my character doing X, Y, and Z. It was my favorite part of the theater process. So now we get to ask why are they doing this? Why are they? Um, and it goes back to that risk safety paradigm, right? It's safer to use those platforms than it is face-to-face conversation. It's just inherently safer. It lowers risk. Um, You can have a manicured or filtered, uh, you can manicure or filter a text message, right? You can press delete before you send, which as you all know, we wish we could do in life, right? Like the number of words that have slipped out of my mouth accidentally, "Ah, no, 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 no. and where I got to pull them back in, right? Um, you suddenly have that as an option. Um, you can manicure or filter what you put on Instagram, right? That's a great picture of me. 
now it's an even better picture of me now that I've filtered it. Um, I hate that picture. Untag, right? Um, we live a very filtered existence on Instagram. Um, and here's the thing, too. You can always shut it off. So if you're hurt by what a friend said on Instagram or what someone said on text message, that's when you see in the movies and the television shows and probably in real life, too, if you have a teenager where they'll throw their phone away from them, right? You can always remove the tool that is um, causing the pain um, if you want to, which is not the case if you're at a party with friends and they offend you, right? Suddenly you have to deal with it. Um, you can throw them out the window, but then that's potential legal ramifications, which is one of the good things that homicide rate has decreased because of this. Um, it's the one perk, right? Less, less social conflict, homicide goes down. Um, so the risk of failure and looking bad is negated the less time you spend with people. That's just the case. And with making sure that they can only see you through a filter. Remember when we talked about second self? I think it was last week. Um, it's a manicured second self, and that's what drives them. Um, so what's happening in the home that drives this, right? Um, and this is where, I mean, I was really trying to figure this out for several months, uh, both on my sabbatical, um, before my sabbatical, and, and into October, um, as I'm studying, right? And it was just bothering me. Like, there's got to be one thing, right? Like, I want the pill, Right? I want the one thing that here's the diagnosis, this is what's happening, what is causing it, and how do we fix it, right? Uh, I, I, am, I, am, I struggle with that. I want a miracle ministry machine where I put somebody in and they pop out on the other side and they're, they're healthy and they're whole. It's not how life works. But I wanted to get my uh, wrap around it. Um, so um, as I'm looking at the text, as I'm interacting with teenagers, um, let me tell you what's so tempting about filter culture, okay? Um, no, this is what bothered me, not tempting. This is what bothered me, right? Like every teenager I interacted with and I said, what has got more benefits, face-to-face -face interaction or texting interaction? Well, they all said face-to-face -face interaction, right? Like none, all of you believe that, right? Every kindergartner, if you ask them, table time or texting time, what's just better for you? Every kindergartner says, table time. Like, I want to be with my friends, right? We all know this. But then they don't do it, right? So it's not happening, but we know it's good. So it's like, what's the... What's happening here? And then it was an aha moment as I'm reading Genesis of all places, right? And... And this is the human condition. We're going to talk about it. This is what's happening in the home. And that is shame. Shame is happening at the home. Um, Adam and Eve have sinned against God, and they're immediately naked, right? Both morally and physically. Um, both God asks, where are you? Right? And they're hiding. Why? Because they are shamed for what they have done. Um, shame is at the core of the human condition especially when it comes to that risk-safety paradigm that we've been talking about. And when I say shame in the home, parents, I am not saying that you shame your students and that's what motivates them to, to run to these more safe. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that shame is part of the human condition. And junior high and high school students, you guys are trying to figure out who you are. And so shame just kind of naturally happens as you navigate this 
world of the adolescence as you become an adult, because it's potentially around every corner. Um, if you say something wrong around your friends, if you dress wrong, if you post something wrong on Instagram, suddenly that all your friends are going to rag on you, and you know it's it's always there. Shame is always the potential, and it's heightened in adolescence. So it goes back again to that risk safety idea, right? Um, for fear that their second self might follow their first self for the rest of their life, right? If so, this happened in the studies, right? In 1980s, if a middle school student is carrying his food in the lunchroom and he slips and falls, right? Um, some people are going to come help him clean it up. They're going to move it. He's going to feel awful. There will be shame that's put on that junior high student, right? Now, same incident happens. There are statistically less kids that come help him. And by the next class, the video of him falling is plastered all over the, the second self platforms so that the shame doesn't just stay with him in the lunchroom. Now everyone who didn't see it saw it, and it's carried with him wherever he goes, right? So now we advertise shame. So it's, okay? Um, and this is where it's linked to... Um, so as we're talking about here, I want to move into a, a higher, harder issue, okay? Um, we're going to kind of park here today. We're going to kind of park here today. Because um, I want you to understand shame. Because I feel like if you begin to understand that, then you can begin to understand this generation. I also want you to understand vulnerability. Um, and I want you to understand their link between anxiety and depression, the link between joy and happiness. These are all kind of meshed together. Um, and if we can have some terms to kind of understand it, then you can have ways that you can love this generation well, right? Um, so you can see how this balancing act plays out. If you want to understand shame, you have to understand connection. Okay? Uh, researcher Brene Brown is right when she says the connection is the real reason why we're here. She's, I don't believe she's a believer, Right? But she's studied this issue for over a decade, this idea of shame, what a shame. And um, for the Christian, that's easy, right? Like God created us to be connected. God the Father is connected with himself in the Trinity, right? Um, connection is all over scripture. It is literally the reason we're here. Um, it is to connect with one another. And if you're in the church, to build up one another in the faith, right? You can't miss it in scripture, um, right? Genesis 3 for this reason, um, he shall leave his father and mother and cling to his wife, and he shall become one flesh. A three-four cold is not easily broken. Ecclesiastes 4, I will be their God, they shall be my people. Jeremiah 32, connection, and the church's connection. For just as a body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. First Corinthians 12. So connection is essential to who we are, right? So how does shame come into play? Well, at its core, shame is this, okay? Um, shame is the fear of disconnection. That's what shame is. It's the fear of disconnection. So that's how this ties in, right? It's people seeing you naked, as in the story of Genesis. And in the story of Igen, it's people seeing you socially naked and saying, I want nothing to do with you. If people knew this about me, they won't like me. If I say the wrong thing, they'll think I'm weird. 
If I hang out with this person, they'll put me in that category too. Like these are all things that play in an adolescent's mind. And it's not just their generation, right? Like you all remember junior high and high school, right? Um, it doesn't matter how old you are in this room. You remember those years because they were some of the most awkward, like uh, trying to figure out life parts. Like I really do think, I really do believe this. The definition of an adult should just be one who is recovering from adolescence, right? Because, like, we're all still recovering from seventh grade. Like, we all know what that was like. Um, I went to four different middle schools, right? That was four different fresh starts. And it was literally the worst thing that ever happened to me and the best thing that ever happened to me at the same time, right? Because I was forced to be vulnerable, as we're about to see here. But I still remember... Seventh grade, um, the third school, whatever that was called, right? And I get there, third quarter, and they're like, AJ, how about you come to the front of the class and tell us about yourself? Like, no! Like, please! I just parked myself in the open seat in the back, not in the front, for a reason, right? Like, I still remember that, but those things were healthy, even though it still shakes me to the core of this day, right? Like, 20 years later. Um, and here's the problem with shame. It gets worse, Right? No one wants to talk about it, and the less the talk you about it, the less you talk about it, the more you have it. Like that's shame. So it's not addressed. We don't talk about it, um, at least in in the world's like standing. You you I Jenners don't have conversations about shame at the skate park or um, around the uh, dinner table, right? But everyone deals with it. Okay. Well, how do we overcome shame, especially in an age when we're still defining ourselves? And I'm going to give you the answer, right? The answer to overcoming shame is vulnerability. Okay? Well, what's the problem with iGen? They are around people enough to be vulnerable. And the time they spend with their friends online actually is a tool to help them not do just that. Depression has skyrocketed for this generation. Why? Shame. Suicide, I'm sorry, anxiety has skyrocketed for this generation. Why? Shame. Suicide has skyrocketed for this generation. Why? Shame. That's the core issue at play in all the negative stuff. So what is the antidote to shame? When they researched this, this was fascinating. This was fascinating when I found this. The antidote to shame, when they researched this, when they could put people in categories of those who experience overwhelming, debilitating shame and those who don't, they found a kind of clear factor in all the ones that don't experience debilitating shame. It's very interesting, and it's the sense of worthiness, right? It's this feeling, it's this sense of love and belonging, and they believe they're worthy. Of love and belonging. So it's secular, right? It plays into it. They believe they're worthy of love and belonging, and so that they feel like they're worthy of love and belonging. And so the people that don't experience this debilitating shame have these type of traits. They feel worthy, right? And for the Christian, this should be abundantly clear. This should be abundantly clear. We are children of the King. We are worthy. Not by our own merits, because that's not going to get us anywhere, but because of the merits that Christ has given us. We have so much to offer the rest of the world, but most of the time we believe the lie of the serpent in the garden, and we think, did God really say that? 
we say things like, God could never love me, God could never use me. Um, God is saying to us, as he said to Adam and Eve in the garden, where are you? Do you believe me that you are worthy? Not because of your work, but because of mine. Or will you believe the lie that you are naked and don't deserve to be clothed? And as I talk to teens, I get to do this a lot. They are a people that want connection. Teenagers are, and that's because they're created for it. That's, I mean, that's a really a silly statement, right? Everyone wants connection, okay? Everyone's longing for connection. But this is, what, this is a theme I get. Many don't believe they've earned the right for it. They've been rejected before, so they don't want to experience it again. Okay, I remember that. Again, four different middle schools. And then this is the worst one, and we'll talk about this even more next week. And that is they numb themselves by thinking they are morally superior to other people. I'm just better than you, right? And therefore, in the process, limit connection with others because they think they are morally superior to others. That's the, that's the hardest one to deal, like to help someone work through. Okay? So how do we break this cycle? If you are iGen, or anyone who struggles with this, it is believing the truths of God. That's how you kind of break this struggle. It is truly believing and embracing that you are worthy of the king and you are loved by both God and those people that have been put in your life. Namely, it should be the church, right? You are valued. Um, and helping people have courage to be vulnerable with others, thereby freeing themselves, freeing them from the same shame. Uh, connection comes with a willingness to be vulnerable. Connection comes with a willingness to be vulnerable. But iGen has not been taught how to be vulnerable. This is one of the things they struggle with with their generation. They have been taught to use a filter because to risk vulnerability is dangerous. Safety is their God. And unfortunately, their God is killing them long term. Okay? Um, so we have to model vulnerability in our homes. Um, it won't make vulnerability any easier for iGen. I'm not saying vulnerability is easy. But what I am saying is that those people who know that they are worthy know that vulnerability is necessary. I'm not saying it's easy. This is not a pill. This is not the matrix, red and blue pill. It's not that. Okay? But we have to model it. Um, let me give you some examples of what vulnerability is. Vulnerability is willing to say, I love you first. It's that type of moment. Vulnerability is a willingness to take a risk when there is no guarantee of success. And you'll find in the coming weeks, especially next week, that iGen does not do that. They rarely take risks unless they're guaranteed success. Millennials started that. We like our trophies, and iGen likes that too. Okay? Um, vulnerability is a willingness to invest in a relationship knowing that it may or may not work out. Vulnerability, by its very nature, brings the risk of failure, and iGen is a generation that is failure adverse. So where is, where is the thing with vulnerability? It has a birth, well, here's the thing with vulnerability. It has a birthplace in a lot of things. Vulnerability is awesome in this. This is what it is the birthplace of. It's the birthplace of joy. It's the birthplace of creativity. It's the birthplace of belonging, and it's the birthplace of love. Those are all the beautiful things that being vulnerable offers you because you suddenly have connection and you have a sense of worthiness, right? 
And ironically, the data tells us that iGen is a generation that feels less joy, is less creative, struggles to find belonging, and hasn't experienced love with their peers. And we wonder why they don't. They haven't learned to be vulnerable. Or they're missing the same time that we did to learn how to take risks relationally. Um, So what's the problem? Why don't we do that? And that is that we numb vulnerability. We numb vulnerability. All people, right? All people, all age groups. Um, Vulnerability is a multi-generational issue. America is the most in-depth, obese, addicted, and medicated culture on the planet. Um, They released this statistic last week. Americans are more likely to die of an opiate overdose than they are a car crash now. And that tells you how much we numb. The older generation is numb by alcohol, comfort foods, new toys. We all know this. But this generation, iGen, has a tool in their pockets that helps them numb the moment they feel vulnerable. Or the moment it feels awkward. Or the moment they're bored. Right? They numb. The moment they feel shame. And it's circular. This is even worse. Okay? They don't know how to handle it, so they never learn. And like any addiction... It can be the first thing they run to when they're asked to be vulnerable or feel shame again. So it's like a, it's a spiral. If you continue to do this, you're less likely to get out of the spiral and therefore you end up just alone, lacking all the things that we talked about and pulling people in with you. You're not a, you're not, you're not a, a freedom fighter anymore that are freeing people to experience all these things. Um, you might, you know, now be level 165 in Candy Crush, or, you know, you might have now liked an egg on Instagram. Um, and if you didn't, you should be shamed. Um, but, like, but there's not really, that's what we talk about. It's not connection. Those are the things we talk about. And this is the thing that's terrifying, right? And this is something I learned over the past couple months, too. Oh, sorry. Um, and that is, um, I thought I had a slide for it. I don't. And that is, you can't selectively numb emotion. I want you to hear that. You can't selectively numb emotion. It's impossible. Okay? And we can't say, here's vulnerability, here is shame, here is grief, here is disappointment, here is anxiety, here's, you name the emotion that you're scared of jumping out of the closet at you, or this is the shadow that follows you around. Here's that. You can't say, I just want to numb those without also numbing the list of emotions that we talked about earlier. Because in the process of numbing those, we numb love, we numb belonging, we we, we numb happiness, we numb gratitude, we numb empathy. You can't selectively numb. So, and if you think about it, a lot of those things I listed, those are the fruit of the spirit, Right? So we literally numb the spirit while we choose not to be vulnerable, not to connect. The fruits of the spirit will not grow in your life if you're doing this. It's actually impossible. They'll begin to shrink. It's like God's telling us to take the risk, right? You have to do this. You have to step out if you're going to walk with me. And the things that you get as a Christian are wonderful. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-good. Those are great things, right? But they're terrifying at the exact same time. Because the expense is, I must be vulnerable and take risk. Okay? Um, 
And we don't just numb ourselves via addictions. That's the crazy thing, too. It's not just alcohol. It's not just the phone. Um, we numb ourselves in the decisions we make. We make everything black and white. There's no gray area. Um, and this is especially in the area of morality. Um, people make, especially iGen, they make absolute moral claims about the culture that they've come to the conclusion on as a 16, 17-year-old and their mind can't be changed, Right? It's like, uh, I mean, every, every older person in the room is like, yeah, I knew it all at 16, right? Um, but it's one of the things that they just do, and, and they stick with it. Um, second, and this is the terrifying one, they're perfectionists, right? Like, this generation is absolutely perfectionist. Think about it. Why? Why? Hence the filter on all the social media apps. I have to look like I have all my crap together. You can't be vulnerable if you're hiding your crap. It's impossible. Because we all got it. No one wants to talk about it. Okay? Uh, and the church can help him beat this by modeling that we don't. Right? Um, and, and we're quick to ex- accept this pattern as parents, too. And we want our kids to be successful. Hallelujah. Yeah? Okay? So we put an ideal before them. Which is good. Everyone needs a goal, right? Like, here's something to shoot for. Um, but if life is all about getting the NCAA scholarship or making it to a good college or getting an A in every subject or being on the honor roll, then we've never taught them the importance of being healthy people who know how to deal with failure. We've just taught them the failures to be avoided at all levels. We all, some of us have the bumper stickers, my kid's an honor roll student. Rarely do we have a bumper bumper sticker that says, my kid is kind. This doesn't have to help. This, the culture plays into it, right? I passed a school just this week. Um, Oh, sorry. That's later. And it doesn't help that we have a culture that won't let them fail either, okay? So school administrations say that they're doing a service to your students by giving them a chance to make up each test, each quiz, each homework assignment, each project. they They give them... I mean, I've talked to students. I was talking to a teacher last night. We had them over for dinner, right? It's built into the administrations. Like, you have to give them a chance to, like, I, I didn't have that. That was just 15 years ago, right? If I failed a test, oh boy, right? You failed it. Um, I didn't have a chance to make it up. I could make up some points by, like, going to, like, a Mexican restaurant and interacting with the, I failed Spanish twice. Okay, like, I... <laughs> But we didn't have those chances. And school administrators know this. We know the data, right? But they're so so terrified to do that because then they lose funding if the grades are too low, right? So the number of college-age students who need to see a counselor their first year of college has tripled since I went to college. Okay, tripled. And the main reason um, is not because, like, they have mommy and daddy Freudian issues. Like, it has nothing to do with the... Um, the main reason counselors are being seen um, isn't because no one loves them, isn't because they don't feel supported. It's because they just got their first C or B and they don't know what to do with it. They just got rejected from the sorority or the fraternity they applied to and they don't know how to deal with failure. They don't know what to do. Um, Their professor doesn't take late work or marks them down from arriving a few minutes late. How do I deal with that? Right? Right? Like that's, the main, it's, that's the main reason. And even now at the college level, expectations in this are vanishing because parents call into administrations. I've talked to administrators, right? 
chewing them out, saying things like, I'm paying $40,000 for this education. You better give them a diploma, right? And when education comes down to financial gain instead of knowledge, well, you have a broken system dealing with broken people now. So it's not only at home, but it's built into the culture now too, which is terrifying. Um, When life is a scantron, human value is and worth are boiled down to what bubble you fill in. And that's the culture that we live in. And that you guys get to grow up in. I am praying for you a lot. Know that. Okay? Because it's even different from when I was there. Okay? The third thing that we do to numb is we pretend that what we do or don't do doesn't have an effect on people. I could spend a whole lesson on that. I'm not going to do that. Um, So let's draw some conclusions. What can you do in the next 10 minutes that can kind of help you as parents, as iGen, as um, people that interact with iGen on a regular basis in church? What can you do to help them? Okay? I'm going to give you some nuts and bolts. It's week three. I've got to give you something. I can't just keep giving you the problem. Okay? Um, What can we do? Uh, The first thing you can do is pray. Um, Many of you already do this. Um, But I want you to begin to pray for a couple of different things. Okay? Um, When I started youth ministry over a decade ago, my prayers for students sounded a lot like this. Okay? Lord Jesus, I pray that these students find you again today, maybe for the first time, that your love would compel them to know that they are valued and that they could love others. That they might see themselves as desired by the king, and I pray that they would find joy in their relationships, success in their endeavors, and maturity as they reach their goals. Like, that was a a type of prayer that I commonly prayed for students, right? In the last three years, I've begun to add two things to the prayer that seems very weird, right? And the first thing I pray for, and this might get fun conversations after, the first thing I pray for for your students is I pray that they experience failure, and a place where they can grow safely. I'm sorry. I want you to fail. Like where it's safe. Okay? The second thing I pray for is I pray for conflict so you can understand forgiveness. Like those are the two new ones that I'm like, that's kind of weird. You're praying for failure and conflict with teenagers. Yes, because they need that so bad to understand the essentials of the faith. Stop fighting. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, I'm praying for conflict. Because <laughs> think about it. If the first time is when they experience failure and disappointment and conflict is outside the home, they are going to get wrecked by life if they don't have a community around them to catch them. But experiencing these type of issues in high school... Is some of the best things for them. Uh, the moment that it hit me most, I had a wonderful car. just a dirty camel. It's a 96 Toyota Camry. Brown exterior, brown interior. That's the name, dirty camel. I love that thing, right? It's my baby. I'm a 16-year-old. And I'm driving um, with my girlfriend at the time. And um, I, it's a corner, right? It's a blind corner. And they had stopped. So I'm going to pound it on the brakes to stop around the blind corner. So I just didn't see them. I didn't have time to stop. So I hit the back end of the car. And ended up totaling the car because the thing was an old junk car. Really, it only needed like $500 damage for it to get junk. And um, 
And I was, I failed, right? Absolutely failed. And to call my father up and to tell him what happened. Terrified, right? The amount of conflict and the emotion. What did you do? This is your car, right? And dad showed up at the rec site. It was literally like three minutes around the corner. And all he did was hug me. And he said, are you okay? And like, I broke down, right? Like in front of the girl I was dating at the time. Like that's really manly. And, uh, <laughs> and just because like I had experienced failure and conflict and shame. And there was someone there to catch me. You know what I mean? And I hope all of you experienced something like that over the course of... We were all fine. It was just a fender bender, but um, still. Um, so that's... Pray for those two things. The other thing to pray for is to put the right things first. I passed a sign this week at a local high school. The sign read this. Work hard this week and be kind. Which, without realizing it, states the order in which we view what's important. Um, when you get home with your students, is the first question you ask them today, how did the test go? Or is it, how did you love your classmates well? What did you do today to make someone else feel worthy and loved? If we're asking those type of questions, right, we're putting the right things first. Please still ask them about their test. Um, because like the test score, that won't happen by accident either. We have to communicate first what's really important. And it dictates what we tell our students is important. Next one. Set aside no screen time zones. Okay? No screen time zones. Um, so game board companies are selling in mass. Like, bring back family board game night. I'm all, I'm all for it. The board games today are European, so they're wonderful. Um, and they're just absurd, and they're great. Um, and I'm all for that, okay? Another thing that you can do, which is really, like, simple, um, but watch television together instead of everyone watching it on their own devices. So we're clicked to all go to their, our own rooms and watch our own shows that we want. So make it to where it's like, hey, Megan, you get to choose the show tonight. And even if, you know, we hate Megan's taste of show, right? Like, even if we hate that, it has a chance for us to have conversations with them. Like, why does the show appeal to you? Who's your favorite character? So that character had conflict in this show, which they always do, right? Do you think they handled that well? What would have you done differently in their situation? Like, you get to have those conversations if you're watching the same show. If they're watching the CW and you're watching, you know, the Japanese um, person who is organizing all the uh, things on Netflix right now. She's amazing. I've never watched a Japanese show, but uh, I'm hooked. And, uh, like, the organizer, right? Like, if we're watching different shows and we don't get to interact, it's incredible. In, in 15 years, TV has gone from communal to individual. So, just do that. Um, and when you're together, be together. Uh, no screen times when you eat out. We all see those families that sit around at the Chili's, which you should be going to. And, um, and they're all on their different devices. The, the kids have headphones in even and are on their, their Switch, right? Like, remove those. Like, actually interact. Um, I, I don't do screens in cars unless it's a long car trip. 
because it is time to interact, even if we're listening to the same program or the same radio station. Um, if, if you do that, sometimes let your kids choose the music. You can have those same conversations with music that you had with um, TV, too. Why do you like this? What stood out to you? What do you think this... What's the point of the song? What's the, what's the uh, musician trying to get across? And then no screens at the dinner table. So just don't do that um, at home. Um, okay, this one, I hope will score me points with the kids, but I truly believe this. Um, have them invite friends over for sleepovers or game nights or dinner in which the students make. So have them invite their friends over for all these things. And then do this. Don't plan anything. We so overschedule our kids that we even schedule their playtime, right? Like, no, not developing a plan. Hang out. And then let them stay up till four in the morning if it's not a school night. Like, go for it. Let them have those times where they're in a safe spot and, like, they're in a safe zone. They can have time where it's just them. You don't have to be with them in the room at all times, right? It's a safe space for them to, if they can stretch independence anywhere, it should be in your living room at 3 a.m., right? Um, if they're leaving the house at 3 a.m., then you get to have those conversations about failure and conflict, too. But, like, these are these are all healthy things. It, that should be the most safe environment for them to begin to stretch their wings. So do crazy things like that. Um, you've provided a safe environment. Lastly, model vulnerability, okay? Your kids know your big sins, they're not shocked, right? They know that. But we either talk about them and how you're trying to get better at them, or it becomes the elephant in the closet and they don't know how to deal with being vulnerable when it comes to their mistakes and their issues. It does the two options. Like they know the problems that you struggle with. Talk about it with them. Um, and again, this is where the church has an amazing opportunity to step in. For a generation that is mostly connected to their phones, the church, by definition, is a connection of people who are connected with God. And we become connected when we are vulnerable with each other. And then we get to model love, reconciliation, humility, peace, and all the fruits of the Spirit. We get to do that with a generation that is longing to take a bite. 